You're listening to the Loose Filter Podcast, and I'm your host, Stuart Sims. This is episode number 117, The History of Punk, Part 1, The Velvet Underground and Nico. This episode was particularly interesting for me to record because for this whole episode and parts two and three of this series, it'll be coming out uh, over the next few weeks. We'll be sprinkling them in with the other episodes. But during these conversations, I very much played kind of the inquisitive idiot because I don't know a lot about punk music other than the broad outlines. Anthony Campolo, a regular host on the podcast and contributor, was very enthusiastic about this series, and he's the lead in this conversation and in parts two and three, and takes us through the really, to me, surprisingly, almost shockingly, seminal and and fundamental influence of punk, not just the music itself, but the whole social movement and artistic perspective around it. And I say surprising to me because, I mean, you know, I knew about punk and I'd listened to some punk music, but it wasn't really to my taste. So I just sort of didn't pay attention to it much and didn't give much consideration to its cultural uh, influence or impact. I think that happens with a lot of us. You know, we just let our taste guide what we like and we miss the larger story. And of course, here on the Loose Filter podcast, those are the stories that we love to find. When we find and uncover these stories or trace these threads, uh, for me, and I hope for you too, it's a way to listen outside of our, our tastes or our normal habits and find music that is interesting and that is part of our cultural history and story and helps us helps illuminate and understand what's going on around us now even though it might not be something we you know choose to listen to put on uh and listen to and relax at the end of a day or something like that anyway in this episode we take a look at the origin and immediate impact of punk music in the mid and late 60s i learned a lot in this conversation and gained a huge appreciation for how uh, certainly this album in particular, The Velvet Underground and Nico, the first punk album, how important it is in popular music history, but also what makes it clever and substantial music. And I think that's what I was missing before. And listening outside of my own taste and preference a little bit and hearing Anthony really set it up and break it apart in a little bit and point out what goes into it really opened my ears up a lot, and I hope it will yours too. It's a fascinating story, and this is part one of The History of Punk. As always, you can find us online at loosefilter.com, and you can find the podcast feed either on iTunes or SoundCloud. I hope you enjoy this episode. This episode, I am joined by co-hosts Dave Gant Hello And Anthony Campolo Hello and Anthony is the lead on this episode. This is going to be, we're going to do what, a three-parter on this yep, one? Yep, a three-part episode. A three-parter. This is going to continue the what seems to be a trend, I think, as we have been doing more and more episodes. Of course, by topic and by design, the podcast has a loose filter on it. But I, I kind of noticed that we've been drawn to topics that sort of highlight you know, trends or ideas or influences that... Once you know what you're looking for are hugely pervasive. You start to see it in all these different you places. You see it everywhere, mm-hmm. but that aren't either aren't evident or kind of aren't part of the main narrative. I think it's just people don't trace people it back absorb. far enough. 
people can get to the influences or the influences of the influences, but you have to trace it back a lot of steps to find sometimes the source text. To find what, like the... Like the, a certain Rosetta Stone, and that's what we're going to be talking today, a certain Rosetta Stone album. Of, of, of ideas and influences yes. in music, in uh-huh. recorded music. Yeah. Yeah, and also, I think, like you just said, a lot of times when people think about influences, they just do a sort of, you know, family tree of musical influences. So this artist was influenced by this style, and these artists, and they were influenced by these folks. And that's very informative, and you can learn a lot, and, and especially if you you want to hear the roots of any music you love in it. You mm-hmm. know, if you want to hear its history in it, uh, you need to to know what the history is. But what you wanted to talk about with this one is even more subtle. It's not just like direct musical; it's like conceptual influence, right? And influence of like attitude, <laughs> of approach, the, the ideas of, that go along with the music. We're talking about the history of punk music its creation, its evolution, and how it's influenced various other musical art forms and culture in general. Okay, and Dave, Dave and I, I should say at the outset, are, are going to play the useful idiots. This is, of course, you know, outside kind of the normal thrust of, of formal musical study. Mm-hmm. Right. But even when you read or, or read articles about or even any, any sort of texts about the history of rock music or recorded music... Often this is not yeah, I think both, really spotlighted also, both right? Both punk and metal to a big extent, too, I feel like have sort of separated from rock at this point and have started to become seen as their own things, even though they grew out of rock. They right. have enough ideas and culture associated with itself that it's also becoming neglected by the main rock narrative, I feel like, because it's been sectioned off into its own thing. Now, isn't part of the problem with punk that its listenership has has always been disproportionate to its influence, right? It's t- it's tended to have smaller listening, smaller audiences. Yeah, definitely. Right? They, 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 it's it's a niche culture. Yeah, and that's underground. Been it's a, underground. Yeah, it's a underground. Definition and of the that's underground. been a big part of the appeal of it and what draws people to it. And you'll see a push and pull a lot of times throughout the decades of people like becoming very defensive when certain punk bands become very popular like the 90s was the biggest example of this everyone right. started talking about sellouts like sellout became well the when grunge thing, right? became yeah, yeah exactly the dominant rock yeah. style and that had already gone through numerous cycles throughout the 70s and 80s and now we're seeing it happen again in the 90s so is that how uh something like punk and we're going to start with right in the late 60s right is where is where we're starting is that how it is so influential without being so well known I think it draws a certain type of person to it, and I think it also draws certain artists to it and type of people who have very influential and sort of in-your-face ideas that become very appealing to other artists and other creative types. And so that's partly okay. what I want to talk about, how it's very artistically fueled and creatively fueled art form that has been sort of sectioned off from the art world despite having so much in common with it and coming from it in a large extent and this band in particular the velvet underground was very very in all wrapped up in the art world with andy warhol and all that stuff in the visual art world yeah the visual art world and the modern art world and what was going on in new york the art scene in the new york 60s and so would you say then that that's our starting point is the velvet underground the first punk band no this is partly what's interesting is that what we think of as punk music really came around in the late 70s. 1976 is usually what people think of as ground zero for punk, and that was when the Ramones released their first album, which had all the characteristics that we now think of 
as punk. Which are what? Musical characteristics. Musical characteristics being short songs, very simple chord progressions, no more than two or three chords for a song. Lyrics that are more geared towards youthful topics or controversial topics. And then the idea that anyone can do it. It's the do-it-yourself ethos and that anyone can pick up a guitar and learn it. And the Ramones was the first band to sort of take everything and put it together in this complete package. But a lot of the ideas had already been going on throughout the duration of the 70s. And all that traces back to this one album where it was, it was like the catalyst of all the ideas Which that album led is that? to that. Is the Velvet Underground's first album, Velvet Underground and Nico. The Velvet Underground and Nico. Yeah, it's very famous for having a album cover, which is just a banana. And that was an Andy Warhol painting, right? Yeah. Because mm-hmm. the Velvet Underground, now I do know some about the history of the, that group. We talked about them on our Minimalism, the Maximum yep. yeah, now Influence in. of Minimalism yep. podcast, because John Cale was in the Velvet Underground. He also Worked collaborated with Lamont, with Lamont Young, Young exactly. right? So there were four guys in the Velvet Underground, uh-huh. right? And they were all... Very oriented, like you said, to creating art music. Exactly. Rather than consumer, you know, popular Mm -hmm. music. The two real creative forces behind the Velvet Underground to understand the mean to understand Lou Reed and John Cale. They were the two sort of personalities that came together and formed this band. And this is when? 1965? 6? 1965, yeah, is when they formed. And the, the origin of how they formed is pretty hysterical, actually, because... Lou Reed was working for a company that does parody songs or like jingles and things like that, like the most commercial form of music making you could sure, possibly sure. think of. And he wrote this song that was parodying songs that give you like dance moves, like the Macarena or something like that. Right. And like one of the dance moves was like, put your partner's head on the floor and step on it. <laughs> <laughs> and that, what did that catch Kale's attention? And it, it became popular. Oh, <laughs> <laughs> so they wanted to hire a band so that he could start playing his crazy parody songs. And somehow John Kale was one of the people that gotten wrapped up in this. And they eventually realized we should just make a band and not go up. Somehow it got separated from that. I'm not really sure how, but yeah. that's how they met. Which is very, very funny to me. Sparked right away. Yeah, because they instantly saw that they both had similar ideals in terms of what they wanted their music to be and what direction they wanted to take it. Okay, so this isn't... The Velvet Underground's music is too... Well, it's too eclectic, really, to be called anything properly. Right. It was very influenced by a lot of different sounds, and that was why it was so different from the time when it came out. It was released the same year as Sgt. Pepper in 1967, But that, I feel like, was an album that was growing and building, and you could see it as a sort of logical progression of where the Beatles were headed. Whereas the Velvet Underground's album was the type of thing that came out, and everyone was like, what is this sound? Or not everyone, because almost no one heard it, but the few people who who did, it was was just like, this is, it sounds unlike anything I've ever experienced before. Uh, Let's, uh, okay, so can you set up one of the tracks that is going to, before we go any further... Any more conceptual stage setting about what punk is or why it's important or how the Velvet Underground is seminal? Let's listen to one of the, one of their tracks. Sure. Give us an example of this totally unprecedented sound world. Great. So this is a song called Venus and Fur and is a perfect example of the drone influence that John Cale brought into the group of long, sustained sounds that create this very dense atmosphere. And that was something he pulled from the Lamont Young collaborations. Uh-huh.
So that track gives you an example of the different droning aspects John Cale was going for with his violin and his viola. And lyrically, it's also a good example of why this album was so controversial at the time. It was so hard for it to break through. It was banned from tons of stores and it wasn't played on the radio because of very, you know, R-rated type lyrics. Which, <laughs> which, oh, it was the lyric content exactly. that, that caused the controversy? Mm-hmm. What was it about the lyric content? There's a wide range of drug references of references about sex bdsm that track actually venus and fur was from a 19th century novel that was about bdsm and things that people weren't really talking about in mainstream culture in the 60s yeah so just definitely r-rated music yeah Yeah. and the biggest example of this came with the song heroin which was lou reed writing directly about what it felt like to be on heroin the lyrics go for and not a not an addiction broke my life sort of morality play but like well not necessarily even glorifying it is but what, just this is it what? was just yeah like this, this is, is just a, what it feels a, like. a reality of heroin yeah here. which is an important thing about the lyrics is that lou reed was not trying to write for shock value lou reed was influenced by poets he studied poetry in college and he worked with a lot of poetry that was just more in this sort of vein because that stuff at the time was becoming a lot more popular and mainstream in the art world and had been for decades but let's look at some of the lyrics from heroin i don't know just where i'm going but i'm gonna try for the kingdom if i can because it makes me feel like i'm a man when i put a spike into my vein and i'll tell you things are quite the same when i'm rushing on my run and i feel just like jesus's son this was a theme, I mean, obviously, if you're a heroin addict, heroin is on your mind a lot, but this is a theme that makes their way into several of the tracks on the album, right? It's also uh, the subject matter of I'm waiting for my man, that you're waiting for your, your dealer to come. So that's a more conventional sort of sounding song from them. And you see it, they had a range of different things ranging from more experimental to more simple songs. Well, other than Lou Reed's voice, I would not have connected that track to the first track. Exactly. As as being by the same band ever, let alone on the same album recorded around the same time. I mean, Mm -hmm. that's radically different. And so you said, while we were listening to the excerpt, I I said, apparently Jones and like, wait for your dealer feels like one in five. Uh And I thought your comment was hilarious. Lou Reed didn't believe in chords. Yeah. He had a famous (laughs) quote. He's like, one chord and you're set. Two chords, you're pushing it. 
three chords, you might as well be playing jazz. Okay, so what? So what? 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 Obviously, they were not musicians who were too, you know, stupid or unskilled to only know two chords. It's not like the Sex Pistols, right, where they were uh-huh. put together because of their attitude, and then they put instruments. In yeah, their hands. Oh, we'll talk plenty about the Sex Pistols yeah. next up. So I got a lot, a lot to okay. say about them. So, so, but these are these are experienced, skilled you know, broadly influenced musicians. Uh-huh. So why, where does that come from? What is it in that ethos? And that certainly is in the foundation of the punk ethos where like two chords and you're pushing it. What is that about? Is that, are they going for the most direct, accessible, radically accessible means possible? Yeah, it comes from what the birth of rock was, is what rock started as, which was basically just a 12-bar blues, you know, one, four, five. That What Chuck Berry was doing, what all those guys were doing is that the primal simplicity of the music is an intrinsic part of the appeal of it. And a lot of punks felt that we were getting away from that by following the route of the Beatles, with the route of more complexity, of more orchestrated stuff, more influence from the classical world. And they were like, rock is great because it's this simple bass type of music. Isn't sort of the punk ethos more about the content? The music would kind of get in the way of the lyrics, which are sort of the base of that? Part of it, yeah, is that the, the lyrics are always a lot of the times are directly calling for action, like political action is a big part of the punk world, and the lyrics are a lot of times the really important message of the music. And okay, the music so too like, much musicianship might get in the way of the attitude. Might get in the way of that. Yeah. So, well, but what's interesting to me, we're not there yet, right? Yeah. We're still in what, proto-punk? Yeah, proto-punk. That's, proto yeah, that's punk? actually what a lot of people call it. <laughs> um, and these are, clearly for this quartet, they're, the simplicity is a choice. Mm-hmm. And so that's why it's particularly fascinating. Can we go to the Sex Whistles? Like, what? I mean, they, need, they couldn't have done complicated music. <laughs> yeah. That was not in their toolbox. But that that is in these guys. That was in these guys' toolbox. Mm-hmm. And so it's kind of, and it was, how much did, like, was this reaction against jazz too because jazz was you know enormously popular well, what's interesting in though is that lou reed loved jazz lou reed considered ornette coleman to be one of the greatest musicians ever and he listened to his music all the time i don't think it was necessarily was it go- about the, if, if it's rock this is what rock is specifically i think i don't know they were just making the music they wanted to make i okay, feel because like, okay. like them being artists they just they were just creating to a large extent and i think that they were just trying to create in the most authentic way that they could but if you listen to some of the other tracks on the album they start doing more experimental things it's not all simple chords sure. they do get into a lot of dissonances and just weird guitar stuff and that's where they started to really influence a lot of the bands that came afterwards The big part of the narrative of how this album got made is Andy Warhol and his connection to the band. And I think it's a really interesting part of the creation of the album because it sort of shows how Andy Warhol really understood what he was doing with these guys more so than almost anyone else. If they tried to manage this band, they would have had no idea what to do with them necessarily. So was Warhol just uh, like a a money guy or was he a a mentor manager? He was, or was he hands-on manager? He was a little bit of both of those and he was also in a place that no one in New York was in because he was like the center of the art world and he had his factory, you know, Andy Warhol's factory is a big thing. Yeah. So it gave this place to just draw all these sort of people together. And part of that was this big show he had called The Exploding Plastic Inevitable, which was... The a, Exploding Plastic Inevitable? Uh-huh. A multimedia Man. performance that was... Sometimes I feel like I was born too late. <laughs> that would have been my kind of party. Anyway, go ahead. Had a film projection of films he made, and then a performance by Velvet Underground, and dancers set to it. So it was all these different art forms sort of smashed together. 
So it gave a platform for the Velvet Underground to start honing their music and their sound. And then he really footed the bill for their first album, which was the big thing. Is that how they were so influential without selling very many albums? Partly. They were given free reign to record however they wanted. Because since Andy Warhol was their producer, but he didn't conventionally know how to be a producer he basically you just, that was how you did it <laughs> he was just like here you go just here's a here's a so, studio so I just buy a studio make and, some yeah. music i mean whatever so andy warhol he was very hands-off in the studio oh, yeah, he was just like here's a studio and that's how we make an album yeah he just let the <laughs> let the musicians run nuts whereas that's a awesome. conventional sort of producer would have been like you guys need to write more hits. You guys need to censor all these dirty lyrics. You guys. Well, well yeah, and don't talk about heroin or BDSM. And a pr- conventional producer also would have been like, do you know how much the studio costs per hour? We need to hurry up. Well, they recorded it in four days, so they well, were still able to do it in yeah, a so decent amount of time. It's not like the Beatles over there in uh, uh, Abbey Road Studios. No, because what, <laughs> what they were doing was a different kind of experimentation. It wasn't about pushing the bounds of new instruments and new studio techniques. It was about how do we use these rock band instruments to do something different. So this is on a totally different axis than the other rock avant-garde of the time, which obviously would have been the Beatles. Uh And also, Anthony, like you and I talked about on a recent episode, the Beach Boys Uh with Brian Wilson. Yeah, and this is a direct analog to that album that came out. It would have come out the same year as this album did. Smile would have come out. Yeah. yeah. And and so, but, but Velvet Underground were less, obviously, one chord, two chords, recorded in four days. Uh, like Dave said, it was about the, the, the total artistic message. Yeah, it was like, a little more of not necessarily trying to create an album that was going to sell or that an album that was going to be a great rock album. It was basically just about creating an artistic art artifact. So that was what really changed it and made it different from a lot of the music of the time. How is it artistic? Like, what about what? What is it in your your estimation? What What are the particulars? So, somebody's listening to this episode and they're like, at the end of it, we want them to go and download Velvet Underground and Nico. We want to have whetted their appetite enough <laughs> or piqued their interest enough that they want to go get this album if they don't already have it, if they don't already know it. So, what about? Let's talk about the music itself some more. I would say the music itself was very much about drawing more texture out of the guitar. It wasn't so much about trying to think about new chord progressions or about more complicated melodies. It was about what can I do with the sound of the guitar? And what Lou Reed did that was so unique for the time is he was into alternative tunings. And this is what actually originally caught John Cale's interest in him as he realized that he had done something with his guitar that they had sort of seen experimented with in the minimalist world, which was tuning every single string to the same note over the course of like three octaves. So you can just strum the whole thing to get one fat note that sounds, and then you could create different droning effects with that type of guitar tuning. So yeah, something like that was very influential. They also started messing around with feedback more, and the Beatles had used feedback, and Jimi Hendrix was also going to become very influential the same year with his first album, Are You Experienced? But they were more into the dissonant aspects of it. And the track that really made everyone go, what, huh? Was the last track on the album called European Sun. You made your wallpapers green. You want to make love to the sea. 
Your European sun is gone, you better sit so long, your clouds treat you goodbye. Makes total sense that he was a fan of Ornette Coleman. Definitely, yeah. I, yeah. I, I can hear that influence for sure. Yeah, no, that's the perfect example. And he was very much into the free improvisational aspect of it and being able to just sort of create on the spot. And you can listen to numerous live recordings of this band and sort of hear how some of their music started to evolve and change. And they were very, very jam-based and had some songs that were like, like Sister Ray is a good one that was like 17 minutes long. It was just a long freeform jam. And every time they played it, it was something totally different. And it was just a fascination with timbres and their interplay. Yeah, fascination with different timbres and sounds and the whole and dissonances and angular sounds yeah. uh-huh. and, and like the the raw it feels like it's uh like really id driven music uh-huh if i could be freudian about like my description but it's like it's really it really is it's kind of just um that sort of ah part of you that just it's probably just spiked the audio but the that part of you that just you know like is just unfiltered you yeah know. and i think that that's one of the biggest impacts that it had on the coming punk music of the time is that it was this very raw and unfiltered type of music it wasn't this cleaned up pristine type of 60s music that everyone was used to at the time it was much more gritty and dangerous it also sounds like from the the examples that we've listened to that in terms of form i mean this is my you know formal music my trained musician brain going there but their song structure is quite varied yeah, uh-huh. I mean, I mean, they're not they're not turning out verse chorus verse chorus kind of structures very often, right? Nope. And we can listen to some of the tracks on it that are more conventional, and that's what I find very interesting about this album is how it really ranges from tracks that could have been on the radio at the time and tracks that were the most experimental thing anyone had ever put to record at the time. It kind of runs that full gamut of musical expression. So let's listen to one of the more simple songs on the album. <laughs> sounds perfectly singleable um yeah that's know. the one i would have if i was the producer i'd be like hey that's one we can give to the record label and yeah. they won't freak yeah. out <laughs> right very, very bob dylan in the vocal delivery there yeah for sure you know what the twangy guitar reminded me of is george harrison because it's about 66 that he got really experimental with guitar sounds too mm-hmm. and you start just hearing random guitar sounds pop up on beatles songs yeah. just like really kind of sometimes 
weird, you know, unexpected guitar sounds that just drop into a middle of a Lennon McCartney tune, you know, that you wouldn't that you wouldn't expect. So I it's cool. That's of a piece, you know. It's it's listening to these this music, it's fascinating to me how it is so distinct and how it must have felt like it came out of nowhere at the time. But also, you can tell exactly when it was made. Yeah, yeah. Going the, back the historical context of the time, you can hear the artifacts of its time. Right, and the, like the, that's about when they got fascinated with guitar timbres because mm-hmm. the technology let them start really yeah. playing with guitar timbres. Yeah, and, and Jimi Hendrix released his first album right around the same time this was coming out. Right, so it's it's fascinating to me how at the same time it simultaneously remains out of its time and of its time. Yeah, it simultaneously remains iconoclastic, but totally of the time and place that it came out of yeah it's fascinating it really is yeah and it's great because so many artists have discovered it and rediscovered it throughout the years so it continues to be seminal oh yeah i mean for now it's considered you know one of the most influential albums of all time the bbc Mm -hmm. about a year ago actually wrote an article asking if it's more influential than sergeant pepper just because it became such a touchstone for an entire subgenre of artists and musicians and underground artists and punk artists and all these people who were drawn to this album and all the bands that they spawned off after that. Like throughout the 70s, we'll talk about bands like the Stooges and Patti Smith and even up to the Talking Heads and R.E.M. All of them list Velvet Underground as a seminal influence. So how is that something you want to talk about now is uh, selling so few, famously selling so few copies. Uh Uh-huh. There's a famous quote that gets attributed to Brian Eno saying that when they release an album, almost no one listened to it, but everyone who did started a band. (laughs) And how, so, okay. So is that Eno, was he being serious or was he poking fun at people who claim Velvet Underground influences? That's what I think is so many people, you know, started name dropping them because it became the cool thing to do. Because it's authentic. Yeah, because there are all these other, you know, cool bands people want to be like started saying, I was influenced by the Velvet Underground. So it kind of became this like tree of influence. It was like all these bands that people got into, they started to try and trace it back. So how did, do you have any sense of how that first started? Like who would have been there at, at Andy Warhol's place and heard him play or who, who first like wrote about the album? Did like Lester Bangs do a feature on it or, 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 you know, how did it first gain its influence, I guess, is my question. I think that would be one of the things that would be hard to pin down to a single moment in time and a single answer. So, some that sort so there of wasn't a clear like out of yeah. the culture and just it started to become one of these albums that just became mythical because people would, <clears throat> you know, it would be like sort of like a secret club. You know, have you heard this album? And was it one of the things that just if you were kind of tapped into that world, you heard about it sooner or later, uh-huh. and that's kind somebody of, gave you a heads up. That's what drew people into it is because it was people were drawn to these underground cultures because of things like this, because of the underground ad- artifacts that people shared between them, because they had these albums or these books or these poems. That's what drew people. It was part of what drew people together in these subcultures. So it's not just that the work was outside of the mainstream; it's that it was not accessible unless you were somehow plugged into the underground. Uh, maybe. I think it was one of the things that once it was, it could kind of go either way. You know, you could get into the world and then discover the album, or you could get into the album and it can make you discover the world. It's uh, People, I think, have different ways of getting into this sort of stuff. I don't want to jump too far ahead in our timeline, but I know as 
a person who went to school mainly in the 80s mm-hmm. when a lot of the underground labels started to break through. Mm-hmm. And I remember that happening. I remember the coolest kids in like eighth and ninth grade, the skater kids. That was It was the, the latter-day punk, the post-hardcore punk bands uh-huh. that, that they were always listening to and passing around. Is this where, with either Velvet Underground or was it with Andy Warhol, where that idea of the underground, the cultural underground, started? Uh, that's a good question. Because it, it's a right, Dave. Yeah, it's it's a child of the '60s. Yeah. So the the idea that there is you know mainstream culture, and then there's your the really good stuff underground. Well, yeah. no, then there's your aficionado culture, yeah. and mm-hmm. then <laughs> there's your really avant garde, plugged in, adventurous underground, off purely authentic culture. So this is it seems to me like this is one of the flashpoints for that whole. Yeah, cultural conception. Yeah, Yeah, it was just one of the first times that people were able to make their art outside of the mainstream because they were lucky enough to be in the right place at the right time with the right opportunities. They they were able to create this thing. So there was lots of people at the time who would have loved to make an album like this, is what I always say, but they didn't necessarily have the ability to get into a studio and to get picked up by a label and got it to actually be put into a record store. Well, and didn't have quite the right talent, the right skill, the right combination of people. So this is just one of those times where everything came together in the right way and it just created this very specific artifact so let's listen to another song that shows a good range of the sounds on the album a lot of people think of this music as being very aggressive and very dissonant and in your face but they were capable of creating even very pretty music and very moving music and so this is the opening track and i'm sure a lot of people who would have first put the album on back then for the first track like oh this is nice and then had <laughs> no idea fake out <laughs> <laughs> It's just a restless feeling by my side Early dawning, Sunday morning It's just the wasted years so close Well, that was lovely. That was, that was lovely. Very nice. So was right? that, it's pretty. I wonder. Part of me thinks that. Well, of course, that's an earnestly lovely tune. They wouldn't mm-hmm. make dishonest music. They were very honest musicians. Yeah. But uh, it also, kind of makes me wonder if they weren't giggling when they put that one first on the album. Yeah. Right. You know, like let's really mess with people and and sort of lure or them. Or maybe in. just ease them in. Or maybe just you know, ease yeah, them. That's, that's yeah. fair. Because then after that, you got "I'm Waiting for the Man," which is kind of a conventional type rock song. Yeah. So they they do ease you into the you know the craziness they were, they were of the thoughtful. album. Yeah. They didn't want to repel people. Yeah. In other words, and they leave it the total craziness for the end of the yeah. album. Okay, so now there's something that, makes sense. that would be different in this proto phase, this nascent origin phase of the culture we're talking about that is not there then the confrontational shock thing of punk culture yeah they were more just kind of in the more art tradition of just this is what art is it's honest and so if the music was shocking it's just because just that a, was yeah that's just, that's a, that was the expressive thing they were creating yeah they weren't trying to get in your face they weren't trying to create controversy which is why 
I find the Sex Pistols to be such an interesting band to talk about because they were really manufactured controversy. And most right. people think of them as being the epitome of authenticity when it's actually the exact opposite. When they were created yeah. to yeah. be controversial. Yeah, 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 yeah. yeah. So, yeah, I, I'm, I'm not quite seeing yet how uh, this leads to punk is it sort of that instead of showing the way it or showing the influence being influential in the sense that it shows what to do it shows that you can do whatever you want yeah that's a big part of it it gets led through a long sort of series of bands that eventually sort of ends up to what we now think of as punk so it makes sense why when you listen to this now you don't hear a lot of direct musical ties between the music and it is more it's more conceptual but the influence and the conceptual ideas are so strong and the thread as we see the next episode is so obviously there that you're going to see how clearly it leads to it just through the musicians who made music and the way they made music. So we'll draw it out in part two <laughs> yeah. a little more discreetly. Yeah. So what about the album? The album is called The Velvet Underground and Nico. Exactly, yeah. Who, so Nico Who's Nico? Yeah, I was like, who is Nico? Every time I see the title of this album, that's who I'm that's what I'm and I've always thought, is Nico the banana on the cover? <laughs> <laughs> I, I think a lot of people probably think that, you know. Probably it's like their mascot, the Warhol painting. <laughs> yeah, Nico, it's an interesting story how who Nico is and how Nico ended up on so the Nico's album. So Nico's a person. Nico on is the a person. Album. Yep. Nico is a German singer. And was very into the whole New York art oh, scene. Oh, that? No, I'm kidding. I'm kidding. <laughs> yeah, she knew Andy Warhol, and she was into that whole world. And Andy Warhol was like, you guys should have her join the band and sing with you. And, of course, Lou Reed is like, that's the ultimate sellout move. Get a pretty <laughs> girl and have her sing songs in your band. <laughs> But they let her? <laughs> I mean, he was... Eventually, yeah, Andy Warhol was able to convince him to do it. And I think it was partly just because he was able to put them together and have them actually see what they were going to sound like together. And once that happened, they probably eased back a little bit because as it happened, it worked out pretty well. You know, Andy Warhol actually seemed to know what he was doing in this aspect of his producerdom. He really got that this girl's voice was going to fit well with the aesthetic and music they were going for because she has this different sort of german sounding voice it's goes along with the alienness of the music i think and so how many tracks does she perform on? she sings on three tracks as a lead and then she does background vocals on sunday morning the one we just listened to okay. but we'll listen to this track that she leads on called i'll be your mirror I be your mirror, reflect what you are, in case you don't know. I be the wind, the rain and the sunset, the light on your door, to show that you're home. When you think the night has in your mind, that inside you're twisted and unkind. Let me stand to show that you are blind. Please put down your hands, cause I see you. I believe my mom has some Nico albums in her collection. So she's a known singer yeah. in the 60s. She yeah. was a known. Yeah, she went on to yeah. have a career, released some of her own albums. And you mentioned they didn't call her a singer on the album. 
Yeah, it was, um, how'd you pronounce it? Chanteuse. Chanteuse. Chanteuse, a French yeah, name for kind of a torch had in, singer. in the yeah. liner notes for her. They called her a chanteuse. <laughs> that's really funny. Do you have any sense of, was, like, Lou Reed's, because when I was, you sent the, the notes for Dave and me to prep on this. With, <laughs> which we did uh, for about 40 minutes. I spent, <laughs> I spent a good 45 minutes reading. No. Um, because this is, I think, not just for me uh, and for Dave, given our rather formal backgrounds, but all three of us are fairly active autodidacts. We teach ourselves lots of things. Oh, yeah. And this is still kind of a gap in my, my cultural experience and Well, this has always been knowledge. on my list of things okay i need to i need to dive into this at some point I've, I've, yeah you know, well, I'm you know just never it, never reached it, that point till now yeah i'm glad to do the episode thing because this really is one of those albums that if you don't know it then it's like there's so many blanks that are about to get filled in <laughs> <laughs> that's a great way to put it <laughs> yeah. because that's how i feel like listening to the tracks so my question is do you have any sense of Especially Lou Reed, that ethos of, you know, we're not going to sell out. This is about pure art. This is which obviously was transmitted directly into the the punk, you know, ethos. Mm -hmm. Was he leading in terms of the counterculture movement? Was was he with Andy Warhol and that whole crew out on on the front edge or were they just sort of surfing the wave? I think they were lucky enough to be the first ones to get their actual work made. Because like I was saying earlier in the episode, it was just... Because of the time, it was so hard to get into a studio to get an album actually physically made. You know, people take that for granted now because we all have microphones. We all have a microphone in our pocket with our phone. But it used to be thousands upon thousands of dollars to get an to, album made. To actually made. Yeah. get your song even recorded in the yeah. most basic sense was exactly. very difficult. Yeah. That, that is important to explain, I think, now because we're far enough into the era of affordable consumer recording gear. It's important to remember how inaccessible recording technology was even you know 40 years ago mm -hmm. so the system that was in place just made it so difficult to release anything that would have been truly experimental something that really goes against what was being made at the time not something that alters it in a way that makes it seem novel and new to people but something that was actually unlike anything that was fundamentally new fundamentally some... new exactly and so so maybe they were part of a zeitgeist but they were some of the first to be able to reify exactly. the ideas and get them out uh -huh. there. yeah and to create this artifact that everyone then could be drawn to that artists and musicians and people who kept thinking you know there's there's more to music than what we're just hearing right now guys like there's other sounds we could be making there's other things we could be doing and these are the guys who are able to directly show with an album that they made to be like, yeah, look at all the stuff. Here's a specific look at all stuff we can do. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> Dave was going to say something. Yes. But I don't remember what it was. Okay. So we're just going to move on. <laughs> I think I think if there are like any specific tracks you still want us to listen to, it'd be good to jump into them before we Sure. Yeah, I would say the last track that I would like to highlight and play for you is seen as pretty much the centerpiece of the album by most people is the track Heroin. We talked a little bit about it earlier and it's a good example of simplicity and complexity sort of melded together because it's a two chord song like most Lou Reed songs but it's highly extended has a very long sort of weird feedbacky kind of guitar solo and it was a track that sort of embodies the whole album. I, I should say before we listen to that clip that, that for this one we haven't we haven't dissected the music examples quite as much as we usually do. Uh -huh. And I hope that uh, we didn't 
Okay, so if you're listening to this episode and you, you wish we'd break down the clips a little more, send us an email and tell us. <laughs> but I feel like that they were very successful in making their music very straightforward. I mean, not just the obvious stuff like two chords, mm-hmm. but even in the more complex stuff, the gestures and the ideas are very clear to me. Yeah, they had a very clear idea of what they were going for. Yeah, and so I feel like rather than than breaking them down they're best served by people just going and listen to them. Yeah, absolutely. Like, like I mean, they don't get what we're talking about. They just go listen to it. Unlike some of the more maybe complex music that we've talked about, where it, it's better served by deconstructing it a little bit. Yeah, I think the, the hardest thing to understand with the album for a lot of people is like a lot of music released in this time in that it's hard to understand it until you understand the context it was made in and the context of what other music was being made at the same time. Because music can only exist in its own time when it's being made. Right, and that's something that has always frustrated me about the institutional curriculum of music. Even though you study the history and you know you learn about the time that music was composed, so much of the music, when you play composed music that you're playing, you're playing music that's out of its time. Mm-hmm. And it's music that's absolutely worth playing out of its time. It's, mm-hmm. it's, I mean, look, Something the, Vel- that survived. <laughs> the Velvet Underground is way out of its time now. It's half a century out of right? its time at yeah, this yeah, point. It's crazy. Still worth listening to, still worth experiencing. But like you just said, I think that's like really crucially important for any music. You have to, I mean, you can just listen to the thing and if you love it, that's great. Mm-hmm. I don't mean to, to tell anybody they're wrong the way that they listen to music. But I have found that when I can listen to it in a way that's aware of, like you said, the time and place. It's native context, if you will. So you can take it on its own terms. Exactly. So what were these ideas like when they were new? Mm-hmm. It's like, uh, okay, so here's a really stereotypical example from the orchestra world, The Planets by Gustav Holst. One of the most brilliant orchestral tone poems, I think, ever written. He wrote it in the early 1920s, and he was so good at making music that sounded like space... When we had radio shows and movies and TV shows that needed music that sounded like space 20, 30, 40, 50, 60, 70 years later, everybody went and stole from Holst. Now you play Mars and people are like, hey, it's that song from it's, Star yeah, Wars. And they're like, it's such a stereotype, right? What's, uh-huh. what's brilliant? And you're like, no, but it was 1926, 1924, 1926. This was so radically inventive when the person thought it up. For the first time. Yeah, and this is why we have the term the Seinfeld effect. People who talk about how you go back and watch Seinfeld and people are like, what's so amazing about this? And it was like, it invented every single thing about modern television comedy that you <laughs> right. like. It's a boring trope because it was so successful, <laughs> yeah. right? It becomes stereotypical because it was so good at its thing. And for music like this, I feel like it's even more important because the music itself is so accessible. Mm-hmm. I mean, I the, like you don't need any real experience or background or specialty and that's what made it draw people in in such a specific way because it had its own sort of musical world it had created and because it was so like directly presented yeah you you know what you're getting you know yeah and it wasn't but it wasn't like if it had two or three chords it wasn't love me do Mm -hmm. or i want to hold your hand it wasn't simplistic right and i think that's something an ethos that came over from the minimalists through john cale you can make something that's simple without it being simplistic Mm -hmm. and i think velvet underground were definitely probably the first to really 
chase after that in their their idiom yeah definitely and that's one of the numerous ideas that sort of then got transferred into the punk world that they were helped start that they helped that they were one a big catalyst for mm-hmm. yeah so what uh you said one more track at least yeah the track heroin to. Her- oh that's right heroin this was a, t- a tangent from heroin <laughs> Death of me Heroin It's my wife And it's my life <laughs> Because a man I So this track gradually comes apart at the seams, mm-hmm. right? It starts out as a sort of latter-day electrified Bob Dylan quasi-folk song. Yeah. <laughs> except that it's about taking heroin. <laughs> taking heroin. Uh, but then it, it just gradually comes apart at the seams, right? Yeah, they, and that was on purpose. They're kind of all over. They speed up and slow down. The guitar strumming's uneven. Uh-huh. Yeah, this is a good example uh, the, of you can always call it comes- called programmatic music because he was going for the effect of being on the drug. He wanted it to musically follow the feeling it was to take, along with the lyrics of explaining what it was So like. that's why the track disintegrates yeah, as right. it goes on, because you're like the dissolution of the, or the, or the whatever, the opiate experience. So this uh, song was, of course, seen as being very much not appropriate for the time. I can only imagine, yeah, yeah, how provocative it would have been. Would have been provocative until a few years ago, probably. Seriously. I think, I mean, it's only really in the last few years that we've kind of opened up to music sort of being more viscerally communicative about certain kinds of experiences, I think. So we had a number of different recording labels that ended up passing on the album. They originally brought it to Columbia because... um, Tom Wilson was the producer and had originally worked there, but they got turned down. They got turned down by Atlantic, got turned down by Electra, but they were finally picked up by Verve Records because Tom Wilson, the producer, ended up getting a job there. And he was like, hey, you guys should put this out. This is this hot new thing that's going on. Right, right. And of course, they put it out and almost no one bought it because you couldn't play it on the radio. So no one could advertise it. No one could hear it. And it just kind of, you know, just died and never really got anywhere until later on 
the Velvet Underground ended up changing around. They changed their membership a bit, and Lou Reed went through this flip where he was like, I want to write all these hit songs now. <laughs> and they wrote an album called Loaded, which was meant to be all hit songs. And they got a little bit more known through that, but it wasn't until they broke up and then throughout the years, all these other bands started name dropping them that they started to be discovered through that way. And then now they're considered so massively influential. All rock critics will talk about them and they're listed in the Rock Roll Hall of Fame and they were ended up on, I think this album was number 11 or 12 on their top 500 albums of all time list. So it's really sort of become this pillar of rock history now, despite how it started and how shunned it was. So it's kind of like that that trope in artistic stories, that romantic trope. Van Gogh dying before he sold any paintings. Yeah. You know? I mean, they uh-huh. didn't die before they sold an album, but you know, they made this culture changing out they they got everything in the long run uh-huh. that an artist would probably hope to accomplish mm-hmm. but in the short run especially with regard to putting food on the table <laughs> they didn't have any of the immediate successes that maybe you you would hope for as somebody working putting work out there yeah and most people don't think about that and they think of you know great artistic purity they don't think about the fact that people who do this stuff for a living they got bills to pay yeah (laughs) they needed to pay their and if you're going to make something great it does take all day every day i mean Uh it's what you have to do for a living uh so it's amazing to me that it continued to be so culturally influential Mm -hmm. and so this leads into by what the early 70s we start to see the punk ethos uh, yeah i think the first band that we're going to talk about in our next episode is going to be the stooges with Iggy Pop, and they are very interesting because they also were seen as a hugely influential proto-punk band, partly because of just Iggy Pop's insanity as as a person. (laughs) All right. And then they also connect to the whole drone scene as well, which I find to be pretty cool because that's a very weird tangent no one would ever associate with punk music is the drone culture. drone culture, (laughs) right. Because when I think drone culture, I mean, outside of Indian music, I think of uh, Pauline Oliveros and deep listening. I mean, that's like the ultimate drone music. And that's super avant-garde. So that's the next episode. Yeah, we'll talk about Iggy Pop. We'll talk about Patti Smith. So the emergence of punk proper, punk yeah, culture what, proper. Exactly, what people actually started in to the, call in the punk mid when, to the, late when the word started to appear and be used for a very specific reason. Hmm? Closing thoughts from Dave. <laughs> I look forward to uh, the, the next episode because I, I, I know about some of those things. So All right. That's, that's pretty exciting. All right. This is, man, a more active contributor. I'm so glad you're leading on this topic. This is fascinating. <laughs> oh, absolutely. And I, I love this stuff and I find it fascinating. That's why I like to talk about it because I feel like a lot of musicians are underserving themselves by ignoring this huge strain of music. So much more that, there. Yeah, about how so- the underground kept going and the underground has continued to go and thrive to this very day. It's still, so we still have a continual stream. Yeah, of a continual stream that leads all the way now to the punk ethos and, what, and we'll have yeah. to talk to you in episode three i assume is when we'll get to all that and also i'm curious to talk about what the idea of underground means in the internet uh-huh. age oh yeah <laughs> like 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 what is that because underground used to mean something really practically exactly yeah and that's what yeah. we'll talk about is how they had to do so much to get their music heard yeah yeah okay fascinating one other thought i wanted to add dave and i talked about this on the episode we did about how technology shapes musical ideas yeah that for me and i know this is true for a lot of people the sounds of punk can be very off-putting to your taste definitely at first and that's kind of by design for a lot of it it's meant to be really shocking and, and get grab your attention and shake you up a little bit 
but one of the the themes that keeps emerging when we talk about these disparate kinds of music is you have to listen outside of your taste. Uh-huh. You have to listen for ideas and not really worry about whether or not you like or don't like the sounds you're hearing, but simply just take in the sounds and go, what are they? Why are they there? Yeah, what are and they Why is this to appealing to so many people? Right, right, right. And the question that I started the whole thing with, how did it become influential? Mm-hmm. And I guess the answer ultimately is listen to the tracks. Yeah. Like it's in the tracks. And I love the way you said it. You're going to have so many blanks filled in. <laughs> you didn't even know we're there. That's fantastic. Standing on the corner Suitcase in my hand Jackson's corset, Jane is in her vest And me, I'm in a rock and roll band huh. Riding the studs back at Jim You know, those were different times all, all the poets, they studied rules 